0: Hello, Cachimbonas! I am so excited to be bringing you episode 15 of season 5. It's so wild to say that. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance. In the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. On this episode, I was very excited to interview Bria Baker, who is the Senior Vice President of Politics and Programming at Inspire Justice, and it's also the new host of the Disney Plus show Bridging the Gap. We decided Discussed why representation in art matters, the role that culture shifting plays in social justice movements, and emphasized the importance of centering reproductive justice in the conversation around Roe versus Wade. I hope that you all will enjoy this episode where we're kind of taking a step back and thinking about the proactive ways that art can play a role in social justice movements if you'd like to support the podcast you can become a patreon at patreon.com for five to ten dollars a month you can receive access to the lit reviews which are book club style chats with fierce women of color there are also other ways to support the podcast. Um, If you can't support Monetary right now, another great way to support is always to leave a podcast rating and review wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you to the person this past week rated on Spotify. It always makes my day. You can uh, follow along and give me your thoughts about The episodes by following Radio Cachimbona at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And as I've announced before, I am a staff writer for Balls and Strikes, a website that gives you critical commentary about the Supreme Courts and the federal judiciary. And you can follow my work around that on Twitter at Yvette Borja AZ and also pullsandstrikes.org. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. I love you so much and thank you so much for listening. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am very honored to have Bria Baker on, who is the Senior Vice President of Politics and Programming at Inspired Justice, but has very many amazing things and projects going on, including being the host of a new Disney Plus show. Um, So before just getting started, I wanted to welcome you onto the podcast, Bria, and just um, ask how you're doing today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. And I'm doing great today. It's Friday. It's sunny in Atlanta. I'm good. How about you?
0: <laughs> I love that. Um, well, I'm very happy that it's Friday. <laughs> um, okay. Yes, and I'm planning some self care for me and my partner because, you know, it is Valentine's Day. Or I'm we're like not really big on, you know, celebrating on the actual day. Like that's mm-hmm. like not as important, but just you know, it's in the near future. So. Right, right. so I'm trying to schedule a couple's massage so we can like chill, <gasps> chill out.
1: That is the best. Wait, it that's is. such a great Valentine's Day thing. Yes. Oh,
0: yes. But you giving um, me some advice. <laughs> well, I was, I saw you living your best life in Puerto Rico. And you gave me that advice. <laughs> on Instagram
1: listen I was trying to like our girl Audrey um yes. set that up and it was just so beautiful to spend the weekend with her and also brought up a lot of feelings which I mean I feel like could be its own other podcast episode about just like ethical travel and how right as people of color and BIPOC folks we can still make sure that we're like you know coming into these spaces as sustainably as we can you know
0: yeah definitely um, and I, the catchy one is, we'll know Adri because she's been on for Lit Reviews in the past. Yeah. So yeah, so you'll know Adri for the Lit Reviews is how I know Bria.
1: <laughs> Love the family. <laughs>
0: yes. So um, you are the host of a new Disney Plus show called Bridging the Gap. and. Mm-hmm you interview creators, animators, and filmmakers about identity and driving social change through storytelling. Mm -hmm. How did you first become involved in this?
1: So it was super random. I've never done something like this before. I'm an activist and a writer first and foremost. And I have done, you know, podcast interviews and media, but typically I'm the person being interviewed about a campaign that I'm working on. But the brilliant Black women who pitched this uh, series to Disney Plus had thrown my name in the hat as someone they thought could be a really great host. And really their, their thought process was just that, like, we need somebody who is fluent enough in these socio political themes that they can mm-hmm. sort of guide the conversation with these creators to a really intentional place. And so they wanted the host to be someone who is either an activist or very familiar in activist and social justice spaces. And so I was was one of the people who was shortlisted to come in and audition. And even that was brand new, like auditioning for a Disney Plus YouTube channel show was like, what is that even like? Um, but it was a pretty easy interview process. It all happened virtually. And then they followed back up with me and said that they'd like me to come out to LA and film the pilot. And from there, the execs loved it and were like, let's do this. So I am so, so excited about it. And, and all of the episodes to come, which I think are just going to keep getting more exciting for people. I I love all of the, I genuinely love all of the pieces and the creators that we're getting to talk to. So it's been really dope.
0: I love that. When did you start?
1: The process began like, beginning of fall last year um but the pilot didn't come out until this past june uh J- sorry january so the first episode a month came ago out- right exactly the first <gasps> oh my god yeah so <laughs> really exciting and the second episode so it's a monthly series so the next episode comes oh, out yeah. okay, um, in wondering. about a week or two which you know, depending on when this goes live, it might already be out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be really good and they're they're thematically focused. So the first episode as a pilot was more general to immigration and mm-hmm. talking with the creators behind Riot and the Last Dragon, which I love that movie. Oh <laughs> my gosh. And I, Should you I have to see it. Okay. Yes. I genuinely believe, especially those who are interested in abolition, will find so many interesting themes Ooh. in my last dragon yeah okay it's, okay you it's have me like convinced all about redemption and <gasps> forgiveness and how we bring people that. back into our community after they've committed harm it wow. was so
0: powerful now wow. that's not
1: what the conversation went into we were talking okay. specifically about immigration <laughs> yeah i saw part of like, that and like their yeah.
0: backgrounds and how this was kind of the first time that they felt like their culture was represented in something that they were seeing in a in like a cartoon
1: Right, thing that's
0: oriented towards kids. I, everybody can watch and enjoy it, as you say, but it's, like, for kids.
1: Right, exactly. It's for families, and so it makes it easier to, bro- you know, it's, like, there's tons of live-action content and, like, adult content where we're starting mm. to see ourselves more in, but there's still, like, a gap when it comes to content that is just, like, family-friendly. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so the creator is South Asian, and, and Ryan Last Drive takes place in you know, a generally South Asian nation. And so it's just really cool to see that community being represented, but also the animators on it are not South Asian. So one is he's Arab American and another is Cuban American. Mm -hmm. And so they were just excited to be a part of bringing that sort of representation to a community that really doesn't have a Disney princess or or character. Yeah. Yeah. The visibility. So it was really dope.
0: Yeah. I love seeing that solidarity. That's so important.
1: It really is. And to remember that, like, it takes nothing from us to champion someone else's story. Mm -hmm. And it actually allows for us to create more space for our stories. So one of the creatives who is Arab American was talking about the first time he saw anything that reflected his family was Aladdin. And obviously, we want more stories than (laughs) Aladdin that are, you know, but like, for him to be able to work on this project and see such nuance is like, wow, that gives me hope that it's not going to start and end at Aladdin that there will be more for my community to see ourselves in because we're, we're consistently pushing the envelope of who is worthy of being the main
0: character, you know? Yes. Who is worthy of being the main character? Oh my gosh. You just, you said something so important right there. So can you explain how this connects to the larger culture shifting work that you've been doing? And can you talk about like the things that you're talking about on, Bridge the gap. Is it like mm-hmm. the creators are diverse, or they're committed to te- to telling diverse stories? Like where, mm. yeah, like I what, totally get you. What is the focus, or or is it both? Yeah. Ideally, I was about
1: to say it's definitely both, um because we really believe with bridging the gap that it's not enough for the industry to say, "Oh, we want." to tell stories about this diverse community. Because the thing is, the industry is realizing that it's very profitable to tell stories about um, marginalized people. You know, we've seen the success of Black Panther and Coco and Gunto and all of these films. So it's not that we should just stop there, but it's that we need to have the people who were talking about and talking to also behind the screen too yes. and so that's been really beautiful that like with ryan the last dragon it's like okay we're telling this story about a south asian young woman and about you know these these nations coming together and figuring out how to not just tolerate one another but to actually live in community with one another and that's not a story that only white people should be telling you know that right. is a story that right. should have south asian people at the helm and should have other people of color at the helm and to give yes. a little spoiler alert next episode is going to be with the creators behind the proud family which I grew up on and I'm so excited about their rebooting and so um yeah (laughs) oh my god I love it so with that it's very you know it's like it's not enough to just have a cartoon about a black girl you have to have black people and black women at the helm of that Mm -hmm. and you also have to acknowledge that in the you know in the Pratt family, there are other communities of color represented. So you have Lacyanna Cabalardas, and you have.
0: So it's like, do we have? <laughs> Wait, was that X supposed to be the Af- was that supposed to be an Afro Latinx character? Originally, I well, I don't know about like the original
1: intention. Um, I don't believe so, but you will see in the reboot that they are introducing the reboot. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay,
0: okay.
1: So the reboot comes out this month and they are just being a lot more intentional, not just with with their storyline, but with a lot of storylines, like addressing some of the, you know, like, The colorism that came out in some of the characters addressing Mm. the you know the fact that it's like all neurotypical and and able-bodied folks and so like they're really pushing the envelope you know bringing more like like diversity of LGBTQ folks in so they're going to be doing a lot more with the reboot and honestly part of that is just that like we talked about this in the episode that when they were first pitching the project because it was so new for them to even be investing in a story that centered around a black family that there were other areas where they were told that they really couldn't push the envelope. And with the success of the show and now this reboot, they're being given a lot more freedom to say, no, we have to do this our way. And we have to not just stop at, okay, it's a black girl and her black mom and her black dad. It's Mm -hmm. like there has to be so much more to it. So there will be more intersectionality. Yeah, exactly. The intersectionality. Yeah.
0: Can you explain how all this connects to the work that you have been doing at Inspire Justice?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's so connected. I mean, with Inspire Justice, we're a social impact firm and a creative agency. And our mindset is that we have people who are hyper-visible and have a lot of resources when it comes to setting or defying social norms. And yet those same people oftentimes don't feel empowered to really take control of The industry, You know, there's a lot of people who will say like, oh, Hollywood is so lacking diversity, but then the people within Hollywood are also saying the same thing as opposed to seeing like, oh, wait, I'm in a position of power to change this or at least change my corner of the industry. Mm -hmm. And so um, at Inspire Justice, we're all about training and advising and giving political education to creatives so that when they go off, whether they are talent, whether they're producers, whether they're showrunners, whether they're writers, that they feel really empowered. Um, to to really push the envelope with the stories that they're telling. And from my perspective, you know, we have that phrase that's like, you know, is it that life imitates art or that art imitates life? And I believe that it's both, but we have to create art that's worth imitating.
0: And I think a lot of times
1: people are content with creating art that asks questions, but mm-hmm. never getting to the place of like, we actually should be taking a stance on this and and like, you know, not necessarily positing that we know all of the answers, but there should be some sort of like, and this is the answer that we are putting forward. And this is the world that we want to see. Um, so that's the work that I get to do at IJ. And it's really beautiful and, and new for me um, when I first got into the company a couple of years ago. I was really just an organizer. I was not at the intersection of of creativity. I don't mm-hmm. see myself personally as a creative. I'm like, what? Well, I I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, that. one. <laughs> I'm learning to reframe what it means to be a creative, but I just, yes, I just felt like I course. was just someone who was like pushing from the outside and I didn't really see myself as someone who was creating something new. And through this role, mm. I'm realizing that like, number one, critique and like critics are creating something new by pushing yes. creatives to do something different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're, so you're first yeah. imagining a new world. That's the first step. Right? Mm, of like yeah. being an organizer, it's like you're organizing, but for a better world. So you've that first step is like imagining that better world. And I think that you're so, you are so creative just because of that fact, you know, because you are an organizer that's imagining different futures. And wow. what's more creative than that? I love that. Yes. Okay, <laughs> yes. okay affirmations. <laughs> I love that. Yes. So you said that you got involved in Inspire Justice a few years ago. How did you make that leap to start thinking about working with creatives or organizing creatives? Is that, is that like a fair way of saying?
1: Yeah, I think that's doing? definitely a fair way of saying it. And I think prior to Inspire Justice, I had been in a cultural organizing space my mentor Carmen Perez is a brilliant Chicana woman who has taught me everything that I know about organizing and she leads a space called the gathering for justice which was founded by Harry Belafonte who was like in my opinion the like ultimate example of what it means to be a creative and a cultural organizer because he was sort of coming up in the civil rights movement and was sort of seeing like okay well I have an opportunity through the acting projects that I take on through the music that I put out to, to set new cultural norms, to defy what people think of when they see a Black man, and to to expand that, that vision and definition. But also, it's nowhere near as important as the work that people like Dr. King and Ella Baker and those who are on the ground pushing for legislative change mm-hmm. um, are doing. And so right. he didn't see that as separate. He just felt yes. like it's so important for me to both be really responsible about what projects I take on and how I show up in those projects, but then to also support the organizers on the ground who are, who are putting their bodies on the line. Yes. And so during the civil rights yeah. movement, he was always fundraising for organizers. He was always just showing up in whatever way he could, leveraging his celebrity towards the, the movements that he cared about. And he got to a place at the turn of the 21st century where he was just like, I don't really see that anymore. Like that was a norm in his generation. And he just felt like artists thought it was enough for them to put out their projects versus supporting organizers on the ground in addition to the projects they're doing Mm -hmm. and not settling for, you know, okay, I made a movie three years ago that was like really (laughs) groundbreaking. And like, that is my activist contribution. And so he started gathering for justice to, to really get creatives back into the movement. And so I had had some sort of introduction in that way because, you know, we'd be planning protests, but we'd invite spoken word artists and rappers and painters mm-hmm. to be a part of the work that we were doing we would make music together and put that out we so that was the kind of things that we were doing but it definitely felt more grassroots versus like stepping into a very like Hollywood and entertainment space but then I got to meet a brilliant person Jalev Calderon who was getting started with Inspire Justice alongside Matt McGorry and was just mm. like you know I really see you and I think there's an opportunity for you to be a part of what we're building here and I was at that time trying to make a transition of like do I go back to school you know that Mm. first gen things were just like I don't know what to do so I think I should get another was it like a (laughs) mid-20s
0: crisis right literally
1: so I was like okay (laughs) this might be a good time I can like work part-time with you as you build up this startup and I can decide you know what going back to school looks like for me
0: yeah and then in the
1: midst of that I just realized like there wasn't a program that I thought was going to train me the way that movement had been training me. And so I just decided to jump headfirst into that work and have not looked back. And I love it so much.
0: Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so exciting. One of the projects that I know that you focused on is urging Hollywood to educate itself on Juneteenth and the history behind it. So like, how is this an example of like driving change through storytelling? And yeah, how how is that project related to that ultimate goal?
1: Yeah, well, I think for me, I was just in general, I was just very hyper aware of the fact that holidays get co-opted and whitewashed all the time i mean pride month started as a stonewall rebellion led by black and latinx uh trans women Mm -hmm. and now it's like discover police are pride yeah yeah police are there and it's like mastercard with a rainbow and so i was just like oh my gosh as juneteenth is getting more mainstream visibility we have to ensure that this like in the sacredness of the holiday doesn't get lost right and so that was what it started as for me, but then it, it, through to just become like oh this is an opportunity for us to remind people through storytellers through these people who have like huge platforms that Juneteenth is first and foremost a holiday celebrating liberation mm-hmm. and if we're not liberated yet it should be a uh, it should not be a holiday where people are taking days off it should be a holiday where right. people are really activating themselves to get closer to liberation mm-hmm. and so that's definitely where it came into for me is like how can artists ensure that this holiday doesn't get co-opted um, and not be complicit in that co-option you know themselves and i think especially you know that was in 2020 when we were at the height of the racial reckoning and you know there were so many Mm -hmm. protests and and the defund police movement was really like expanding Mm -hmm. but then um when it came to 2021 and and you know juneteenth is being made a federal holiday and a lot of and like a lot of companies were giving the day off and people were sort of like well we didn't ask for juneteenth as a federal holiday we asked for defunding the police and it was like Right. You know, we're asking for both, actually. Like, mm-hmm, I do mm-hmm. think that public memory is so important to how we yeah. are honest about history. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's a disservice for us to think that it doesn't make a difference because we're seeing that now with the anti-critical race theory conversations
0: that right. this country
1: is completely stifling its real uh, inception stories. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to remember holidays like Juneteenth. It's not like, oh, this is the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. It's like, no, this is like years later when people were actually getting free because the white people who were enslaving them were hiding that news from them. And so if we continue to hide the truth, Mm -hmm. we're going to continue to keep people in marginalized positions where they have a boot on their neck. Right. And so I think it's important for us to do both. It's like, we have so many monuments to whiteness in this country and we need more monuments
0: to us. Yeah. It's a black liberation. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, I also like really appreciated learning more about the, the history that, of Juneteenth that where there's folks who escaped to Mexico during the time period. Yes. Yes. Where there was this dispute about whether or not Texas was going to join the union and um, if it was going to do so with slavery or or not. And during that time period, people are just like, well, fuck this. And there's like a community in Northern Mexico of Uh, It's like Afro Mexicans who are direct descendants and trace their lineage to that time period, and they celebrate Juneteenth. And they talk about how for them, it's like celebrating Black people celebrating themselves, and how their ancestors are part of that. Right.
1: See, even that is like a history that's like a nuance that like
0: Hollywood is not getting.
1: Exactly, one million percent, and it's it's because the stories that Hollywood does choose to put out like to position you know, the empathetic white people as the heroes of the story, as opposed to like, no, people of color were saving each other and we're in solidarity with each other. Like, I think it's easier for people to believe that most black people were fleeing to Canada. And I think that is like a white saviorist like idea versus like acknowledging that like we were fleeing to whatever border we felt was safest for us and closest to us. And most people in the deep South were going to Mexico because it was the easiest path for them and they knew that especially once they got through to Florida and Louisiana they were going to be met with sympathetic indigenous tribes and, yes. and Mexican leaders who were mm-hmm. going to support them on those fights so those are things that we don't really see
0: yeah yeah right and like those are kind of the real histories that I feel like are worth uncovering and worth preserving as you were saying 1 million percent, 1 million percent. So we I mentioned this earlier that representation for children is really important, but wanted to draw out like, why is that so? Why is it that the type of programming that Disney provides, having representation within that is important?
1: (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I just think that representation in every field is just so important, because the reality is like the The legacy of white supremacy touches every single industry, but I just think like we totally underestimate the fact that creatives, like their work, once it hits a screen, is seen by so many eyeballs and whether we believe it or not, or how much credence we give to it or not, it totally changes how we see ourselves, how we see other people. We internalize a lot of the things that we see and our young people internalize a lot of things they see. So especially in animation, I think it's just so key because a lot of young people's self-esteem is totally shaped by what they see in those like first 10 years of their life and if all they see are white people or black people in positions of trauma or they don't see any other people of color. It's only it's only black or white, and it's on a binary. Then they believe that there's not a place for them in this in this country. Right. Um, and I do think that we have to take that ownership back, especially considering that the only people who are the original Americans are Indigenous Americans. Like mm-hmm. this American project can and should reflect all of us.
0: You know. Yeah, I think you said it best before, where kids will just they'll get to believe that they are not the main characters. So they don't deserve to be the main characters. One million, percent, awful. one million percent. They're used
1: to being the sidekick. They're used to yes. only being allowed to be funny. Um, and what I also hate is that like, even when they are a side character, there's just no nuance or backstory. So it's like, Oh, you have this all white friend group and this one like black, <sighs> guy or this one latina woman or this one like asian woman and the thing is like we never see their family or their friends and it's like i find it so hard to believe that these characters of color only exist in these white spaces right they're not surrounded by any other people of color and they're only there to support the white person in their personal development like it's just it's very you know it can feel very like defeatist when it's just like oh so i'm only here to to, to help the main character you and help yeah, you. yeah mm-hmm. exactly and then when you grow up and then you go to school and you're being it, it feels like it's being assertive because the only time your opinion is, is really weighed in is when you're learning about the like really horrible thing that happened to that person's <laughs> community right. and then it's like oh tell us Bria like what you know what your thoughts are on slavery and it's like you know like all of those experiences are like deep deep microaggressions that like hammer in that you were only here as a prop and so Mm -hmm. that's why I really love what we're doing with bridging the gap because it's like oh we're putting these communities back in the center stage and reminding us that they have just as nuanced lives just as complex feelings just as many ambitions and motivations and all of those things and I think it gives young people of color permission to feel all of their feelings versus feeling like oh I'm not supposed to right be thinking this
0: right I feel like that's one of the most powerful parts about the show is like celebrating all the ways in which this is already happening. Do you think that that's one of the main goals of the show is to kind of spotlight the more diverse storytelling that's happening? Or is there also a hope that this will be a catalyst to improve that even more?
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely see it as both for me. I mean, I think The goal is that you know when I think of this being a monthly series, I'm like, is there enough content for us to keep this going? And if not, is this show going to encourage people to do that? Um, I think in the first episode, Rebecca Perez was talking about the fact that when she was growing up in Miami, she didn't even know what an animator was. And so a lot of times it's just exposure, right? And so I'm hoping that there are like young people or college students who are watching the show and are going like, oh. I love to draw and I didn't even know like a path for me. But now I would love to create a show and like see it come to life and know that there is a space for me and that people are interested in those stories. And so I do hope that it encourages whether that's like creatives of color and, and queer creatives and other marginalized creatives to see themselves in the field. Or for executives to watch the show and say, oh, there's an audience for this. And this is something we really need to invest in. But either way, either way I do think that sometimes we lament all of the problems in the industry. Yeah. And we don't always know how to show up for all of the things that are going well. And I think it is an I feel opportunity that. to give people their flowers.
0: Yes. I love that idea of giving people their flowers. Because on, like that was what I was thinking when in, when I watched the first episode was like, Wait, I had no idea that there was diverse animators behind this, this via right. the dragon, <laughs> and um, it's. I I think there's so many like firsts that go unsung, um, like, the first Latina judge is um, Carmen Consuelo. I forgot her last name, but which is terrible. See, I'm proving my own point right now. <laughs> And, uh, right. no, but, yeah. and when you google like first latina judge it's a little bit sad because sotomayor's seo game is so strong she's just she just like totally like wipes out this other person you have to go to like the fourth google page to find her <laughs> but it's right. like right. yeah and it's, it's like buried yes it's buried and that you know like we should be recognizing people and um like part of the my new job is keeping track of the judicial nominees that will somehow in twenty twenty two be like the first black woman appointed to a circuit appellate judgeship in the eleventh circuit, and mm-hmm. that is like currently happening. And I just I like being aware of these things and giving people their flowers, as you say, because it because we need to be able to hold nuance and do both, right? Like fight exactly. for more, but also you know appreciate and celebrate the strides, you know. The strides that people are currently making.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because I see that all the time, where uh, marginalized creative works so hard on a project, and then people don't show support for it enough, and it doesn't get renewed. For example, Mm. or people, you know, they 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 love it, but they don't say that on social media, so the executives don't think there's an audience for it. Um, And so it's so important for us to be just as loud about the things that we love in the Mm. space as we are about the things that we hate and want to Eradicate in space, Um, which there's an Asada Shakur quote where she says, We need to be weapons of mass construction, not just destruction. And I love that quote because it reminds me like, okay. I don't want to just be a critic. I really do yes, want to be a part of building yes. the world that I want to live in. Yes. And we can do both. hands. I'm not saying like don't mm-hmm. protest or boycott the things right. that are harmful. No, right, right. But like really champion the things that are going right and the things that you want to see. More, um, and I've yeah. shown like when we did that for Black Panther, like it it reverberates, and people in the industry are like, oh, okay, got mm-hmm. it. More of this. Heard you. <laughs>
0: So, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about a 2020 New York Times feature that you did where you're quoted talking about how protecting Roe felt like a distant fight for you during a time when police murders of Black people were really what was at the forefront of your mind. And I wanted to ask if you feel differently about this now that the Supreme Court has shown really how willing it is to overturn Roe and how you know it's kind of essentially paused that right in Texas for months now,
1: right? Right. So I don't feel differently, but that's because my my thought was not that I felt distant from the actual like need to protect Roe itself, mm-hmm. but that the way that the mainstream framework feminist yeah the framework mm. that mainstream feminist spaces use right. to advocate around Roe is very antiquated and not participatory. And I still believe that that's true. I think that the leading feminist spaces who hog up a lot of the budget and donations and visibility are still very, they center older white women's perspectives. Mm. They have not tapped into the reproductive justice framework that is a lot more expansive and will speak to young people of color. And specifically for me as a young queer woman, outside mm. of obviously like you know uh rape or something of that nature i'm not going to get accidentally pregnant i'm in a yeah. gender loving relationship yeah and we are only going congratulations to get on getting married by the way <laughs> thank you thank you so much and so, i love like, the
0: pictures like so beautiful
1: Oh my gosh, that the so Oh, that's a, okay. We got to talk about that. That looked lit. It was the best and I just loved it so much. Yes. But no, I just think that um, they are doing themselves a disservice by not taking on the lead of groups like Sister Song and yes, National Latina Institute for Reproductive mm-hmm. Health and, and other yes. spaces that I believe are doing a much better job at bridging the gaps between these two and talking mm-hmm. about how we need Roe just as much as we need to be able to raise our children in safe environment and all of yes. those things. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so in the mm-hmm. article, I, I went in depth about the fact that I believe that, you know, the civil rights movement and the subsequent movements that it inspired in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were very focused on the Supreme Court and legislative change. And I think that those two things are important. But the things that it missed out on was, what do you do when you lead a campaign for years and years and years and years and, years, and you lose in the Supreme Court or you lose in Congress in the White House? people feel defeated and they feel like it was a waste of their time. But if you are able to really bridge and and have like a multi-pronged approach that is also super participatory and says there are things that we can do locally and we don't need to ask for anyone's permission to do that are so much more substantive, like abortion funds, like.
0: Mm. Yeah. Like Jane's due process. There's like a bunch of organizations like dedicated to, well, actually like talking about Texas. I mean, I said paused the right, because I mean, they've, They've essentially, like, made it not accessible in Texas. Right. But, like, people are still getting abortions, though. Like, there's just, like, you know, organizations like Due Process that are dedicated to helping people access abortion because, like, I mean, things were were fucked up even, like, before this SB8 specifically happened. Like, you know, there's always been an issue with access. That's why there are these funds on the ground that propped up to assist people because of how costly abortion is, you know, because – It's not, it's, like, not government-funded, and it's, on top of that, you have to pay for travel and lodging and... Right, exactly. You know, there's, yes, there's all of these things, and I think, um, I totally feel what you're saying. There's a total disconnect, I feel like, between, like, a lot of, like, the D.C. kind of establishment quote unquote, women's rights organizations, and then like, the really rad people that are doing the work on the ground, like Jane Street process.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's my issue. And so I do think that like, you know, I love the person who was interviewing me, I think the headline totally mischaracterized not only myself, but other people who were interviewed, because there was a brilliant woman, Cynthia Gutierrez, who is I just, I love following her work. She has is a doula and has been an abortion advocate for a very long time and is a new mom. And she has been working on these front lines for so long. And she even felt like her quotes were kind of framed out of context because she was critiquing the way that white women talk about abortion, mm-hmm. not the fight for abortion access itself. But I really do stand by the fact that I think that older white women are attached to their feminist movement and have not figured out how to adapt it to this youth-led space that we're in today. And especially when you have so many competing priorities, we're talking about abolishing mm-hmm. ICE, we're talking about defunding police, we're yes. talking about this
0: planet. You can As reproductive then... justice though.
1: Right, exactly, right. as reproductive justice. But yes. then you can't talk to that group and then just be like, oh, um, sign this petition and donate to ACLU. Like that's <laughs> or, not gonna or resonate or with that group. Right, or Planned Parenthood where, I mean, no tea, no shade, but where <laughs> the ED is making half a million dollars, so it's just like, it's just hard for those groups to think that that is a a good use of their time. If what feels like a better use of their time is mutual aid, is being out in the streets, is is disrupting congressional hearings, like we we are looking to take a lot more bolder action and it just feels like those mainstream spaces are not needing that energy where we're at and so that's why I'm just like you know I follow the lead of especially being in the south I love sister song mm-hmm, I love I same. love Latina Institute and I same. follow their lead mm-hmm. and I wish that other people would do the same including these white spaces I wish that they would yeah. just fall back a little bit and give more attention to those groups
0: that's really fair and uh, I actually like I have the same critiques of the article. I mean, and like, I really appreciate you giving this context because after you saying this, and then from what I remember reading the article, it's, it, it was framed in a way, it was, it it was framed in a clickbaity way. Like, like you said, like the headline was not, it was, I think it was clickbaity and wasn't really reflecting what you were saying because I don't think that they got to the critical part of what you're saying, which is that. And so we need to be, we need to support these specific repro justice or Exactly, you know? and those it, were yeah. said in the
1: interview, and then right. didn't make it to the print. And then I'm yeah. like, damn. So, so in my like reposting of it, which I know that obviously not everyone who reads it is gonna get that, but at least yeah. those who read it because they followed me. Like my repost of it was like. Literally follow these groups. They are yeah. talking about this the right way. They are doing this the right way. And that's how we all need to be talking about it. It's not just abortion access. It really does need to be reproductive yeah. justice, which yeah. is so comprehensive yeah. and includes includes not just, you know, because I think there are some people who believe that if we defended Roe and we were able to like halt what the Supreme Court could potentially do this Mm year that that would be enough and it's Mm -hmm. not because still it wouldn't be accessible it wouldn't be affordable we still have um, it's not affirming you you don't have like for for people who don't speak English they don't have the experience so all of those things are not addressed by just one Supreme Court case but if you believe that by stopping this one you know Supreme Court situation that you've done enough and then you're like ah pat myself on the back let me go have a drink it's very much giving (laughs) like the white women who came to Women's March and then were like yay we saved the day but if hillary was here we would have been at brunch and it's like no you should have been out here both times and like that's what i was hoping that the article would say and it it didn't as much as i would have liked to but you know i stand ten toes on what i'm what i intended to say
0: (laughs) yeah no and i i hundred percent agree with you and i'm so glad that it brought this up because like i feel like boy, you said the article could be mischaracterized as like some as like saying something oh like abortion access like isn't important to black women and it's just like the furthest thing from true
1: right exactly
0: yeah and it's the and the that's why the reproductive justice frame is so important because it's like for women of color for people of color this isn't just this is about family planning and like what that means is having our lives protected right so exactly yes yes Mm -hmm.
1: and one last thing i'll say is like so it's an interesting thing in media, which I'm, you know, even as a writer, I'm still learning because with the New York Times piece, I was just an interviewee. I had no kind of say in in what culture pulled and, and how it was framed. But after um, the initial piece came out as a contributor for Elle, I reached out to my editors and was like, can we do like a follow up to this piece that just like corrects the record? And then I brought in exclusively Black, Lat- Latina and Indigenous women to talk about what that piece was supposed to be speaking to and I felt like it was so powerful and obviously like it has a different reach than the New York Times with L. but I, I did that was like the way that I tried to correct that record and so I brought back in Cynthia who was interviewed in the original piece to sort of like set the record straight on what she was really trying to say and brought in other people like Chanel Portia who founded Ancient song and who you know just other leaders in the space around reproductive justice to really just like set the record straight on what we what we really mean when we say that white women should not be at the forefront because they're getting it wrong
0: right well I love that and I'll include that I'll link article in the show notes so that people can read that and just get that correct story oh yeah love that (laughs) thank you boo yeah yeah so this, now I wanted to talk about your good old college days. <laughs> oh, good old. <laughs> good, good old. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. So in 2015, you were involved in campus protests. And mm. some of these were sparked by outrage about a professor who sent an email, essentially condoning culturally appropriative costumes. And yeah. this, this, was the spark that led to a broader conversation about what it's like to be a person of color at Yale. And I wanted to ask, what did those experiences teach you? Because that was a huge moment. I think those were the largest student-led protests that had ever happened at Yale. And you were just centrally in that milieu. So what, what did you take away from that very intense experience?
1: Yeah, no, that experience was mind blowing. Ah, there was so many things that I learned. Um, I would say that the first thing was just about like multicultural organizing. Um, it was the first time that I had organized across racial lines in that deep way. I mean, it was like La Casa, which is the Latinx cultural center at Yale, the House, which is the African American and Black cultural center at Yale, NACC, Native American cultural center at Yale. And like, it was just all of us coming together around that. And it was just so powerful for me to really see that. And I think there's a lot of times where people are very pessimistic about what multicultural organizing can look like. And specifically in the Black community, I think there are a lot of people who just believe that other communities of color are not are just not going to they're not going to show up yeah they're not going to show up for I them i feel they're like that's gonna, fair because like, i mean solidarity. that does happen a lot right and it does and i see that and to the point of what we're talking about with bridging the gap i also think it's important for us to highlight the times that we have done that. And I think for me as a student of like the Black Panther Party, that was like big for them. It's like Black Panthers were organizing with young lords who were organizing with like Mm -hmm. the Red Power Movement, who were organizing with like white Appalachian, you know, working class folks. And so Mm -hmm. I do see positive examples of that. And I think when we can bring more attention to those, it gives people a model of like, oh, that's what I'm working towards. And that's who I can be as an accomplice to this other community that I'm trying to organize with. So that was one thing, just like the solidarity piece was just so moving because the thing was that like the, the article or not the article, the letter that the uh, professor had sent out mm-hmm. was really about um, culturally appropriative costumes, uh, like for the indigenous community. It had been that yeah. there was an indigenous student who had been really like decrying those who are wearing headdresses on campus. And this, professor was basically like just look away and so to see this like but it was more than movement- that it
0: was very weird it was like she was like because i took a class with her so i was really interested in what she said oh, like not because i less. thought it would be good but yeah right <laughs> but just because i was like hmm what's this lady got mm-hmm, to say mm-hmm. and it was really bizarre it was like because she she studies play and um how like Playing is a really important part of like early child development. It's you know which actually it's like important like important stuff to integrate into, like preschool and like early child ed- child education. But she she then did this thing where she turned wearing a headdress into play.
1: Yes, and- was like oh so can my daughter not dress up as Mulan or th-? and it's like it's like no bitch <laughs> yeah, like for you to for you to conflate those two things is so dangerous and also shows like why you should be in this position of power you know right yeah so that was I mean and but also I think the other thing that people kind of from the outside looking in didn't really get is that it, the campus was a powder keg there were so right because
0: I was like on, that was a um, spark but it was like some it was so many other things right Oh yeah, because the other
1: spark was that there was another, so there were two events around Halloween. One was that Christophe's letter, and then the other was that there was the Black girl who actually wasn't even a Yaley. I'm pretty sure that she was a Black Columbia student who was staying with her Yale friends, and she and her friends were going to a frat party, and she was turned away at the door because they weren't letting Black women in. And so there were those two events that happened around Halloween, but then it just conjured up all these other thoughts about like all of the experiences that we had been stifling, because the school year prior to that, a Black male student was held at gun point by campus police when leaving a library late at night and even long before that we had had since the 90s students had been protesting the residential college that had been named after calhoun so it just it had brought up all of these things that were just like we're sick of sitting on a campus that uses us for the diversity brochures and then has no investment in what our experience is when we get on this campus and they want to take credit for our successes but they don't want to invest in us having a positive campus experience here and so it definitely to your point was like all of those things coming together and I think I I learned a lot too about just like the inevitability of certain things Mm -hmm. where like you can be working on an issue for so long and and sometimes a light switch just goes off, and you—it'll be the thing that you didn't expect. Like for me, when when the student was held at gunpoint by campus police, that was when I thought, oh, this campus mm. is going to explode.
0: Right. And right. it
1: wasn't that. It was the next year. And right. I mean, there about was about not being led into a party. It
0: was very interesting. Right.
1: Exactly. But but it was like you really don't have control over like when that moment happens. But that's why organizing is so important because if you're waiting yeah. for the moment, you'll miss right. it. But if you're right. organizing all year round, every year, then when the moment happens, you already ready. have the structure in place and you're ready. So for us, it was like, okay, well, AFAM House had our own groups that had been waiting for the chance to really get some demands in. Then we synced up with some other people who had, and then we were all able to come into the room and say, all right, so with this moment, what are we going to push through? We don't just want like, oh, we got an apology from this person. We got this. Let's get some real demands met. And some people were kind of surprised because they were like, well, these demands have nothing to do with what just happened. And it's like, yeah, because y'all have not been paying attention. Um, these demands have right. everything to do with what right. we've been experiencing since we've set foot on this campus.
0: Right. I know well, that, that just speaks to, I feel like, a really common misconception of what people think racism is. Like, Exactly. Like they yeah. think that it's like a personal slight. You know, like I think maybe that is why, like, not getting into the party was one of the sparking things because it's like that's thought of as like the traditional interpersonal racism that's become in some places socially unacceptable and like whatever. But I guess it's as you say, just some things are inevitable. And yeah. as an organizer, you just have to, what's the saying? You stay ready so you don't need to get ready.
1: Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) how it is. And I think for people from the outside looking in, they're just like, oh, like, yeah in this moment there's this thing that's happening and it's like no they had been doing that all along and so when a moment yeah. came around where people started to care it was like great now we can leverage this moment towards the long term talk about structural racism
0: around. exactly yeah it's like that's so frustrating that people would be like what does that have to do with like the starting mm-hmm. a, a center for racial diversity and it's just like really <laughs> yeah yeah one million but, percent no but that's it it's like yes it well it's And this this goes into so many things like this also is how the affirmative action debate is framed, you know, as like because there's a reluctance to recognize real structural racism, then anything that is like any policy or any anything that's attempting to combat that structure is Mm -hmm. somehow, you know, being pitted as the racist thing.
1: Yeah, 1 million percent. Yeah. And that's because people don't want to focus on the structural changes. They want feel good changes um, because structural changes are dangerous because it might mean that they have to seek power.
0: Right. Right.
1: Which is definitely what Yale didn't want to do. And so they tried to, like, appease us with some of the demands without having to meet some of the larger structural changes that were being asked for. And, you know, that's that's what we expected these schools, which is why I was like, "Mm." laughing when he's like the good old days.
0: <laughs> no like, i mean my timing here was not great and i know yeah, <laughs> that I imagine. yeah but and i know that but and you know at the same time like we did form good friendships here we are
1: <laughs> exactly exactly
0: yeah thank you for sharing that i i really appreciate you delving back into the world of 2015 and thinking about that place
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love thinking about that year because I really do believe like I learned more from my co-organizers in that year mm. than i did from any of my four years at yale and like mm. there's so many times when i just look at the work that i'm doing now and I'm like there's no way that like my actual degree program prepared me to do the work that i'm doing mm. but like my comrades and and the people that i got to organize with did and so i learned so much from people like Yvette esteban and esha shirley and lex barlow and all of the other uh, like there's so many, Rose Bear Don't like there's so many people that I got to organize with that I just really learned the disciplines of organizing from mm-hmm. and just left really feeling like, okay, even if Yale was not the experience I thought it was going to be, like, right. we're be okay.
0: We're gonna be yes wait I love that also shout out to Betty who's also been on the lit review everybody Yay! needs to become lit review patron yes y'all do <laughs> um so those were all the questions that I had the last thing I wanted to ask was if there's any new projects that you're working on that you'd like to share yes yeah, so I'm writing a book
1: right <gasps> now which what? I'm super excited
0: oh about. my god icon <laughs>
1: I'm so excited about it. And it goes back to the wedding a little bit because I, for those who don't know, I got married on family land. My family has 86 acres in North Carolina and I got married on that land. And it was so, so beautiful. But the book that I'm writing is about the legacy of land thefts in this country and the Mm. modern movement for Black land ownership. Mm. And it's really powerful because I think my interest in it just got started with trying to understand like, why aren't there more, like when I tell people that, My family owns land and we're working class. So we're not like, you know, rich and we have like an estate. But when I tell people that we own land, people are very surprised. And I just was very interested in like, why is it so rare for Black people to own anything in this country, let alone land? Yeah. And then the deeper I got, the more I'm just trying to also understand that intersection of like, well, all of this land is Indigenous first and foremost.
0: Right, right, right. But
1: but how was it taken from them? Mm -hmm. And then how did both Black and Indigenous people fight for the land that they had been toiling and working and tending to yeah. for centuries, mm-hmm. um and now when we talk about racial wealth gaps, people talk about it as if you can work your way out of it. Like, oh, you just got to no. negotiate more and and get this job and check. Right. And it's like, listen, all we're doing what you got to do, but you cannot uh, outwork centuries of white supremacist Ooh, theft. That. And so, wow. I think I just got to a place where I was like, I don't think people really understand and and fully like wrap their mind around how much wealth in this country was built on the backs of land theft and enslavement and how Mm -hmm. Black and Indigenous communities specifically have historically been boxed out of it but not exclusively because also when we talk about land theft it's talking about like how can you tell um you know Latinx people that they this is not their country when the border crossed (laughs) them and like Chicanos (laughs) were living in yeah you know California and New Mexico and Arizona and Texas like long before we ever were and or even like when we look at Hawaii and like that like that is still an occupied kingdom and so like all of those things I just was very interested in so now I'm writing this book called Rooted the American Legacy of Land Theft and the Modern Mm. Movement for Black Land Ownership it will be coming out Hopefully, next year um, through oh One World Books, which is oh! the home of the 1619 Project and wow. all of Ibram Kendi's work. So, I'm like super excited because cool. they are constantly pushing the envelope and, and trying to publish books that are just like just contending with the real history of this nation and, and yeah. just making us look it in the face. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that this will also be a book that reignites. The conversations we're having around reparations and land back mm. um to
0: really reframe mm-hmm. the
1: fact that like we're not asking for handouts like this is actually right. pay and y'all yes. owe us this um and so yeah that's that's what I'm working on
0: oh my god I love that have so you maybe read the- out, we can do a lit review yes oh my god yes <laughs> i absolutely cannot wait um and again yeah, i was gonna ask you if you read indigenous people's history of the u.s by Roxanne yes. dunbar okay yes that's yes. like yes i did a lit review on that book this past lit review season and that helped me understand so much of indigenous land theft and i'm so excited for you to connect these intersections with black land ownership yeah one
1: million percent one million percent yeah
0: i'm so excited Oh man, I love that! Congratulations, I love this. Like you're creating so many amazing things. This is so inspiring. And wait, what was the what was the what was the quote that we need to be as committed to construction as we are to destruction?
1: Yes. So we must be weapons of mass construction.
0: Um, Mm. And I'm gonna
1: actually, I I have this up on my like, (laughs) I I try to keep it up on my um, computer. So I'm gonna like try and pull up the full quote because it really is such a like powerful. Okay, so Asada Shakur said, we need to be weapons of mass construction, weapons of mass love. It's Mm. not enough just to change the system, we need to change ourselves.
0: I love that. Oh my god. Okay. Well, Bria, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This was an absolute pleasure. And I'm already putting it in my calendar that we're going to have a lit review next year when your book comes out.
1: Yes. Thank you so (laughs) much for having me. I'm so excited to continue talking with you and just like for you cultivating this space. It's so important for us to be able to have these combos without the white gaze. Yes. Yeah. Just thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.